Hey everyone, Corey here. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Flirting with Models. If you're enjoying the show, I'd greatly appreciate it if you'd take a moment to rate, review, and most importantly, share with a friend. Word of mouth is how this podcast grows. And if you'd like to learn more about Newfound's platform of return-stacked mutual funds, ETFs, and model portfolios, head over to returnstacked.com. Now on with the show. Are you ready to go? All right, three, two, one, let's do it. Hello and welcome everyone. I'm Corey Hofstein and this is Flirting with Models, the podcast that pulls back the curtain to discover the human factor behind the quantitative strategy. Corey Hofstein is the co-founder and chief investment officer of Newfound Research. Due to industry regulations, he will not discuss any of Newfound Research's funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinion and do not reflect the opinion of Newfound Research. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Clients of Newfound Research may maintain positions and securities discussed in this podcast. For more information, visit thinknewfound.com. In this episode, I am joined by Tamara Philippe and Elena Hosaeva, both of Bridgeway Capital Management, a quantitative asset manager founded in 1993, offering systematically managed equity strategies. That's not how Tamara or Elena would describe it. And that's what this episode is all about, communication in the realm of quant. As president and CEO of Bridgeway, Tamara provides us with the perspective of why effective communication is so important for building an enduring asset management firm and why quants, in particular, face an uphill battle. Elena, who serves as head of U.S. equities, offers us insights from the PM seat and provides some practical advice on how to best communicate difficult quantitative ideas. We discuss both the importance and difficulty of ongoing investor education, smart beta's impact on industry comprehension, and ideas for how quants can better communicate in the future. Tamara and Elena, thank you for joining me today. I think this is going to be a really fun conversation. I'm pretty excited. Good morning. Good morning. This one's going to be a little different than... The other podcast that I recorded in some of the past past season, as well as this season, we're going to talk a little bit more about the business side of quant rather than going strictly into the nitty gritty investment nuances. And in particular, what I'm really excited to talk about today is the idea of effective communication for a style of investing that is really often admonished as being very quote unquote black box. And I know none of us feel that way, but that's very common perception in the industry. So I'm excited to talk about ways in which we can overcome that as a community. And I think it's a particularly timely conversation because the last 12 months have really been a difficult period for a lot of the traditional style premia. And even going back further than that, categories like systematic value and trend following have really struggled over the last five or 10 years. So I think it's a really timely conversation. One I know you guys are going to bring a lot of expertise to. So to kick it off, I was hoping both of you could give us a little bit of a background as to who you are and your roles at Bridgeway. Great. Well, I'll start off. I'm Tamara Philippe, and I am the president and CEO of Bridgeway Capital Management. I've been in that role since March of 2016. I've been at Bridgeway for 14 years. 
in a couple of different roles before that, head of client service and marketing. And before that, what I called a strategy and operations role, which was my job to myself was whatever it takes to help us grow when I first started in 2005. Before that, I actually have a computer science undergrad, an MBA from Stanford. I worked at McKinsey and Company doing strategy consulting, had a little stint in the middle at a startup around global telecommunications. So that's a little bit about me. I have my dream job at Bridgeway, and I'm very glad to be working with Elena, my teammate. So I'll let her tell you a little bit about herself. Sure. Thank you. My name is Elena Hosaeva, and I have an honor of working with amazing partners at Bridgeway and leading our investment management team. So my roles, my responsibilities include portfolio management, research, communicating with clients, and currently I'm a head of, the, of U.S. equity at Bridgeway. I've been with Bridgeway close to 20 years now. I have two homes. One is United States of America and another one is Belarus. So I came to the States a while ago and I have a privilege of getting my education here. I went to the University of Houston. Whenever I graduated, I was fortunate to find Bridgeway and Bridgeway found me. And so now I grew up professionally at this firm and it became my second family. So Bridgeway has a long history. You guys were founded back in 1993, which is really early days for quants. How has the perception of quant changed since then? And were there any catalysts that you can point to that really highlight that change over time? Absolutely. And I'll go ahead and betray my Texas roots here and say that every time I get asked this question, I think about a 1981 song by Barbara Mandrell that was, I was country when country wasn't cool. And Bridgeway was definitely quant when quant wasn't cool. I think about quantitative investing in really three major phases. And I think the first phase was, you know, started before Bridgeway was was founded, but really lasted all the way through like pre-2007. And that was where, you know, quantitative investing was not, was really used in the hedge fund world and in a very limited way in the mutual fund world. Our founder and current chief investment officer, John Montgomery, saw that opportunity and really thought, you know, the evidence was compelling and that humans in general, because of our behavioral biases, are really bad investors. So he thought, you know, quantitative methods were a superior way of investing and that he wanted to make those investments available to more people. So that's why when he originally started Bridgeway, he started in the mutual fund world. And that continued to proliferate where there are more and more asset managers like us started launching quantitative driven strategies. But then 2007, a lot of people refer to that as the quant quake. And there were definitely some problems with a number of quant strategies that were closely related And that I'd I'd say threw us into the next phase of quantitative investing. And I like to joke that quant was a four letter word from about 2007 till, you know, in in the meetings that we were having, probably the 2013, 2014 timeframe. And it was during that timeframe where Bridgeway really refined how we described our style of quantitative investing. And we started referring to it as statistically driven evidence-based investing. And that was really to spark a conversation about our 
differences from our closest quantitative peers, because as I mentioned, you know, during that quant quake, that, that did affect some quantitative managers specifically. We at Bridgeway do some things very differently than some of those people or those managers that were affected. But we dealt with that that brush got painted across all quantitative investing after from, like I said, from about 2007 through 2014. But, you know, we we tried to address that with our communications. And then in the I think in the 2013, 2014 timeframe is where we pivoted into the phase that I think we're in now, which is you know, much broader acceptance and understanding of the variety of quantitative strategies that we're not all the same, even though we all have some underpinnings in similar beliefs, most notably that humans are really bad investors at the really worst times. I think that's something that unifies most quants. But for example, you know, there's so many different flavors, you know, from one end of the spectrum, high frequency to the other end of the spectrum, which I would put Bridgeway in and much more long-term oriented, translating traditional fundamental methods into systematic approaches is kind of our flavor. But this phase we're in now, I, I would say I'm personally very excited about it. I think we're if you think about the technology S-curve of adoption, I think quantitative investing has moved into, we've sort of crossed that chasm of, hey, this is not going to work at all or, or get wide acceptance. And we've moved into what people refer to as the early majority phase. And the next phase is being you know, late majority and then full adoption. But in that early majority phase, we're still you know, a very small portion of what I think our total potential is in terms of adoption and understanding of quantitative strategies. So those are some of my thoughts about the eras. And then, you know, the catalysts, as you asked about, you know, I, I really think the number one catalyst that will continue to support us and all of us, all of the other managers out there who are building approaches that are systematic and quantitative is the search for better methods. I think that's something that unifies us and unifies our clients in wanting to have investments that are really using the, the best methods possible to create their financial security. And then computing power has been, of course, a huge catalyst for quantitative methods. I mean, we can do things today that we couldn't do even five years ago. And that's that's contributed to more understanding on the professional manager side. I think Moneyball, I mean, it might, might make some people laugh, was actually a catalyst. And, you know, there was the book in May of 2003 by Michael Lewis and then, you know, a movie. I mean, come on, Brad Pitt, like May 2011. And that just put, you know, the idea of quantitative methods, of course, applied to sports, but the idea that you could use these methods to beat a human intuition started to become more and more in the common vernacular. And just the overall proliferation in sports, I think, has helped most of us or many of us, including myself, are sports fans. And so, you know, when we see something working in that world. It's like, oh, wait, maybe we could apply this to other worlds. And then I think fee pressure has been a big catalyst for quant. I think most people agree that people have sought more efficient ways of, of investing and, and quantitative methods can do that at times. And the, you know, the final I kind of talked about, you know, frankly, we've struggled as quants as a whole to communicate better. And I do think that you know, the introduction, and I'm not a huge fan of the term, but the introduction of better terminology, smart beta being one of them in that 2013 
2014 timeframe of something that, you know, whether you like it or not, did get widespread understanding. And we go into conversations today having a lot less to explain than we did pre that period. So I want to talk about something you said there. You mentioned the phrase statistically driven evidence-based as a phrase that you guys like to use to really differentiate yourselves from other quants. And really, when we think of the landscape of quant, it's it's a big, big landscape, everything from your high-frequency traders to your firms that are a little more shrouded in secrecy, like your Rentex, to derivatives pricing at banks, to your more sort of traditional buy-side equity factors. Can you talk a little bit about how you came up with that phrase, why you think it's important to use that phrase, and, and maybe how you think it helps differentiate you from other quant firms in your space? Absolutely. Well, we started using that terminology really around 2010, and it was in response to questions that we were getting externally and just this idea that the use of quantitative methods in investing had really expanded and evolved, and there were lots of different approaches that were some of them very different from the way we think about ourselves. And so like everything at Bridgeway, we arrived at that phrase through a team effort, a lot of vigorous discussion around the team. And, you know, it's not one that we think is completely perfect. But what we have found since 2010 is that it does get us into the right conversations with the people that we want to understand us the best. So it gets people asking us the right questions about what is statistically driven evidence-based investing. And I'll let Elena elaborate a little bit more about what we do that is different from other quants from an investment perspective. But I'll launch her into that by saying, you know, the other thought that we've arrived at that we borrowed from a woman named Sally Hogshead, who focuses on the science of fascination, is this idea that different is better than better. And that's something that ever since I heard her say it, I just see it and see examples of it everywhere around Bridgeway and just out in the world of of how really thinking about being different is, is better than better. So Elena, would you elaborate a little bit more about our particular style of quantitative investing and how how you see the application of that statistically driven evidence-based? I would say that the choice of the description statistically driven and evidence-based was done mainly to highlight the basis for our decision-making, that decisions within the investment process at Bridgeway are made based on the numbers and statistics and, of course, having an underlying theory behind that. That's where the word evidence comes from. And as Tamara mentioned, it starts the conversation and then we explain where we fit on the spectrum of the quants. It is a very large spectrum. And the way we describe our process, it's a systematic approach to processing fundamental data and price data and being very discipline-driven and using this combination of the numbers, theory, and expertise of the team to make decisions. And then we'll also talk about this execution being a very disciplined process almost like following the orders of the doctors, you know, prescription orders. Whatever research tells us to do, this is what we execute in the implementation process. What I find really interesting, one of the things you said there was that this phrasing you used, the statistically driven evidence base, was something that 
was actually a response, something that you came up with in, in 2010 as a team after the 2008 and 2007 quant crisis and evolution of how you want to describe what you do. And that's, you know, 17 years after the firm was already founded and, and up and running. And I think it speaks to the need for a firm to continually evolve its presence, evolve its communication. I was hoping you could maybe speak a little bit about what it takes to build an enduring firm. You know, I think this is a really difficult space to just survive, not even thrive, but really just survive. It's highly competitive. Bridgeway has obviously been able to do so with great success. And even in an era where quant was really not as well known or favored. So as you look of, at taking Bridgeway into the future, what do you think the keys are for, for continuing that enduring success and, and building an enduring firm? Well, I'd like to talk about this really in two parts. Number one, you know, when I think about building an enduring firm on, in quantitative investing, number one is investing. And I'm definitely very interested and passionate about this topic, but I believe that asset management as a whole is facing some very serious disruption. And a major question that we ask ourselves and that we believe everyone should be asking, and and for the most part I see are asking, is will we evolve fast enough? And as a computer science geek undergrad and former McKinsey consultant, I think about this a lot. And I'm, I'm really an Andy Grove disciple. I mean, he talks about only the paranoid will survive. And I, I definitely think about that and, and have really been able to get my Bridgeway colleagues to rally around that concept with me. And I just passionately believe that not just Bridgeway, but every investment firm as an industry that we have to get more focused on our clients and the nobility of why we exist. Like, what are we trying to achieve for our clients? And trust is a major problem in our industry. I don't know how many of your listeners follow the Edelman Trust Barometer or some of the work that the CFA Institute has done around trust. But final, financial services and asset management within that, the specific research that has been done that, we are dead last compared to all the other sectors that have been studied separately. And not a surprise, which is interesting, is technology in the Edelman Trust Barometer is first in terms of what people say they they trust. Technology is an industry, not necessarily technology in its application. And part of that is that they've been able to talk about and get to the source of what are they really doing for their clients or customers and to really build that trust. And in this industry, I hear way too many of our peers and even ourselves sometimes, I have to include myself in that, losing sight of we have to make sure that we are here and that we love our jobs because of the service we provide and the value that we create for clients, putting our investors' interests first. I hear a lot, way too many selfish reasons of why people are attracted to this industry, whether it be the money or intellectual challenge. And those selfish reasons, from my point of view, are a recipe for the disruption that we're facing. And that's a major problem of building an enduring firm just in asset management or investing in general. 
when I go deeper and think about a quant firm specifically, I both get excited because at, at the most optimistic view of how much of this industry's assets that we hold, it might be a quarter of the assets. And I think we have an opportunity to hold way more than that in terms of how many investors are invested in investment strategies that are driven by quantitative methods. And we've grown a lot, but keeping a big picture, there's a lot of opportunity ahead, but there are major challenges. And some of the challenges that I see are, right now we have more competition than ever in quantitative investing. This is back to what we were talking about in the eras. We're in an era where, you know, quant has gotten kind of cool. I think that actually will wane with another bump in the road. But quality data is critical, particularly for quants. And, and that's been a hurdle, but I think that's getting better and better. The search for talent. I talked earlier about the proliferation of quantitative methods in sports. And when I recently read the book Astro Ball by Ben Reeder, and when I finished it, I thought, why would a super quant ever go into finance instead of sports? It just sounds like a lot more fun to apply these methods to sports. But, you know, that kind of impacts our, our search for talent, which is a challenge. And the last one, one of my favorite topics of challenges, but also opportunities, is building trust, which is where I started about the, the problem for the industry. And this is where I get really bullish about quants. So I adopted a view of trust that I think I heard from the Center for Creative Leadership like over 10 years ago, and that there are three components. There's character. You, you, build, you have to have character to, as a basis of trust, capability and then communication. On character, basically you're not gonna survive unless you're putting the client's interests first. And you know, we, we think and talk about that a lot at Bridgeway and, and frankly, the best peers that I know in this industry are focused on that. And then secondly, capability. This is where I do think quants have a huge advantage. I mean, all you have to do is pull up resumes or talk to, talk to a few quants and Capability is definitely not lacking in terms of our education to be able to do what we do for clients. And as well as our experience, quantitative investing has been around for over a quarter century now. So there's a lot of people who have been doing this for a long time. And the, But the third, communication has been our biggest hurdle. And when I think about building an enduring firm on quantitative investing, the topic we're talking about today, communication, is number one on the list. We've just got to do a better job and we work really hard. And back to your original question, that's why we continue to look at how we're communicating about what we do and and we're willing to evolve and refine our message. And when we know better, we do better. So on the topic of communication, I find that Education is this really, really important concept in communication. Um, and one in which I, I will say that I think I struggle personally as it relates to quant education. I very much try to be on the forefront of continued education. But I think there's some very nuanced topics that can make ongoing education difficult. And so the example I give is it's almost like teaching chemistry. When you're younger and you get your intro chemistry classes, you learn the Bohr model of an atom and you have this nucleus where you have your electrons going around in this nice orbit and you almost think of it like a planet with the planet's rings. 
And then you get into higher level classes in college, perhaps, and you learn, well, no, they're actually probability clouds and everything you learned in the past wasn't right. And I, I find, at least in my own experience, that that very often happens, that re-education happens almost at the wrong time, that when you introduce someone to an investment strategy, you're giving them the basic foundation they need to have an understanding. And then when performance deviates from that understanding, you have to re-educate and it can all too often feel like moving the goalposts. So I'd love to know, and Elena, particularly from you as a portfolio manager, how do you think about striking this balance between education, understandability for someone who's coming to a product for the first time, and providing enough transparency that they do build that trust and don't eventually feel betrayed by any performance that might be different than their expectation? That can be just the topic of the podcast on its own. I would say three things come to mind. One, repetition matters. Two would be know who you're talking to, know your audience. And three, be prepared in advance. What are the levels of your conversation, of your disclosures? And so let me talk about those three. Repetition matters. This one's interesting. I was just at a meeting with a group of advisors in Chicago and one of those advisors said the stage kind of really well for me. She said that she just read the research where it stated that it takes an individual seven times to hear the information to remember it. So it takes seven times to remember something. So I'm like, great. And here we go. Even though they know our process, they've learned it before. I've started the conversation about performance. This was a performance update, but I've started it revisiting our process, what are the research findings, why we have these multiple models in the strategy, striving to deliver, and how our expectations about the process are coming. And before I even got to the performance, I felt like the audience remembering, and they were nodding, and you know, they were nodding in the room, and they were they were so prepared now for talking about performance that that made it easier for me, regardless whether performance was good or bad, but knowing the process and remembering the objectives and what are we delivering, it was crucial. So all I was doing is repeating what I've done previously, but that repetition matters. Number two, audience matters. So knowing who you're talking to, whether it's a board of directors that may not have you know, no quantitative concepts, or it may be a group of consultants that have all kinds of designations and they know exactly what I'm talking to, you know, to the level of the variables and be prepared in advance with what is the language that you're using. And so that, that is experience, that is learning your client, learning your audience in advance. And so with time, I've learned to talk about factors at a high level using proxies, using analogies and talking about maybe a price to earnings ratio in general as the way to define value versus using our bridgeway valuation metric, which is a custom build and has a combination of various fact variables in it. So knowing what is the audience so that we can speak the same language, it's important. So we talked about repetition matters, audience matters, preparation matters. That's actually a big one. And thinking about disclosures and your communication strategy in advance rather than on the fly has helped us a lot. It didn't come easy. We've had meetings where the clients or consultants desire for transparency and 
just not being there, not getting it was not helpful. And there is an assumption that if we deliver all the detailed variables and coefficients, that it would make it easy to understand the process. But actually, that's a false assumption. It's not about specific variables. It's more about the concept and objectives and how we talk about the process that matters much more. So we realize that there is this tension between desire for transparency and our desire to be transparent, but at the same time, our responsibility to protect the confidential information in our trade secret. So we've struggled for some time and then again, kind of evolving along the way, we've approached this very systematically. We formed a committee, which is basically a group of partners in charge of the project. We've developed policies and procedures around our confidential information and trade secret. And then we've put it in writing. We put in writing various disclosures of all of our strategies at different levels. So that was incredibly helpful in knowing what to communicate, how to communicate, and who will be communicating that. We went a, a step further, and then we've kind of de, you know, segregated maybe in a way, or we designated partners on the various levels of disclosures. Therefore, whoever goes and facing the clients knows that person has clarity of what to talk about, what not to talk about. You know the boundaries on your disclosures. That is incredibly helpful to know. You feel very confident in those conversations because this is what I can tell you, and this is where I'm going to use examples and you know, maybe a proxy for a conversation because I cannot go there. That confidence in knowing what you can or cannot disclose is very, very, very helpful in conversations. It also makes the conversations consistent. Consistency in whether it's me talking about the strategies of Tamara or our CEO, John Montgomery, that consistency helps remove all the confusions and, you know, what are you talking about? What is the definition? So that was very helpful. And lastly, it made it very effective to get the new partners up the learning curve and help our new, whether investment professionals or client service and marketing professionals get up to speed and learn to communicate and have that basis for their education and move the, up the learning curve faster. So repetition, know your audience, and be prepared in advance. I think the combination of those three approaches help find that balance. You know, it's, it's a work in progress, but I think we're way closer to that balance than we used to be. So I want to stick with that repetition idea. Because I think it's, it, what's really interesting, and I always find a, a challenge in this industry, is that there tends to be a big appetite for initial education, but the appetite for ongoing education often dwindles once an investment partner adopts a strategy. And often that ongoing education can be some of the most important, at least in my experience. And one of the things I always sort of keep in the back of my mind was this little story I heard that Apple, when they actually have an important security feature they need to release on their on their iPhones, they won't do a software update as a security feature because no one will actually download the software update. They'll actually do something like release a new emoji pack and hide the security update in that new emoji pack because everyone will download the new emojis and get the benefit of the security update, but they won't necessarily just download the security update on its own. And I often find it sometimes a little bit difficult to just get people to sit down and talk about education because the partners we have in this industry are busy with so many other aspects of their business. How do you think about delivering ongoing education and what are some of the strategies you use 
to make sure that your partners do continue along that education curve to better understanding how your strategy works in practice? I would say several several approaches. One, you know, going back to this into the example that I gave about start with the investment process and you know repeat yourself in a way. We do this, I would say, all the time. We start our conversation with clients by let me remind you what are we doing in our strategies. Let me talk at the very high level of our investment process. But even that high level reminder start the conversation going and they start asking questions, you know, oh, what is that model? Remind me about this combination and why do you have that? So interjecting that at the high level tends to bring up more questions. And then we're doing this ongoing education, you know, in the beginning of the presentation. Another way that, you know, I find it very helpful, the way if we go into the ongoing client meetings and performance updates, we, we've developed a way to talk about our attribution that's tied to our investment process. So it was a very creative way of, you know, we can talk about sectors, we can talk about individual securities, but that's not how we manage strategies. We manage, for example, our, some of our strategies by this combination of different models. So we've designed an attribution to reflect that, the, the attribution report. So I will tell the audience that before I get into the attribution and I talk about performance, let me explain why this, this is designed that way. And so again, I'm reminding them about that and then kind of get connected, get reconnected on the process. And last will be where we're disciplined at following the plan, but at the same time, we are open and flexible about changing the plan if we feel like there is a need for that. For example, the 2018, fourth quarter 2018, there were some unusual conditions in that period. And we knew that we need to deliver something different to clients and to help them understand what happened. So we've developed new graphs and we've talked about the general performance of the factors before we got to our factors. We've used proxies. We've kind of expanded our, our presentation materials. And I think that being a small firm allows us for that flexibility and that efficiency. We can turn around the new marketing materials very quickly and make sure that we are relevant, that we satisfies the requirement of the compliance, but at the same time, would deliver updated and relevant information to be most helpful to our clients. I just wanted to add and build on what Elena was saying and around ongoing education and your comment, Corey, about the challenges that the, our audiences face in optimizing their own time. And this is an area that I think has been a real success in our industry but also in particular for quantitative managers, is just making our research available. I would say that Bridgeway, ourselves, we have a long ways to go, but I would just applaud our peers in this, just the amount of research that is available in the industry, white papers, research papers on SSRN, just everything that's being made available to people to access when they want it on their own terms. I think is extraordinary and again has contributed to the success that investment managers are having today. Those of us who are, I believe, going to have success surviving the disruption that we're facing is because we're communicating in an ongoing way, but not always on our own schedule. So making research available, like I said, as an example for Bridgeway, but I think our peers are doing a way better job in, in a lot of ways. But our head of research, Dr. Andrew Birkin, has co-written a couple of books 
the, the Incredible Shrinking Alpha, as well as the Complete Guide to Factor-Based Investing with Larry Swedro. I think both of those are great references that we can build from to make our in-person conversations shorter and more direct that we can build on and let people know that they, if they want more depth, they can reference the ideas in those. But the same thing, I mean, we see you do this, Corey, many of our peers, and we find ourselves referencing papers from others. And I just think the collective knowledge that's being built and the, you know, raising the bar on giving clients and prospects access to information outside of an in-person meeting is really, really good. And that's the critical part of ongoing education. And then to cap that off on, Elena was talking earlier about transparency. And I mentioned a book that I highly recommend, and not just because I'm a Houston Astros fan, but as a quantitative investor, the book Astro Ball by Ben Reader, he's profiling. Jeff Lunile talks about trans- them trying to become the most transparent front office in baseball. And he has this great quote that I think we've applied at Bridgeway, developing our own communication, and we have a long ways to go. But you know, is there a risk we end up giving away some company secrets Possibly, this is a quote from from Jeff, but we feel the benefit of having fans in his case and clients in our case that feel like they're involved in the process is important. And we just spend a lot of time collaborating on that at Bridgeway. The culture that we've developed at Bridgeway is really helpful to that because people are very humble. Everyone's always trying to get better. We're working on consistent terminology. I'll save that for later, Corey, if you want to dive into my soapbox of is value a factor or is PE a factor? Things like that. We spend a lot of time working on that at Bridgeway. And I can see from what's out in the public domain that a lot of our peers do as well. And I think that's to the benefit of investors. Well, let's let's actually dive into that a little bit now, that whole value as a factor versus PE a factor. And it sort of ties into a, a broader conversation about the quick ramp that we've seen in the quant space. And I think to something you touched upon earlier, which was, I think smart beta personally has been a huge conduit for introducing quant ideas, but I think has potentially also created a bit of confusion. And we, as a community, maybe haven't been as clear as we should be around terminology. So as you brought it up, maybe you could sort of get on your soapbox for a bit and talk about how you think about it and maybe ways in which we can better communicate this as a community. Absolutely. So I would just chime in and say, we're not fans and don't use it for ourselves, the term smart beta per se, but do I think it's helped? Absolutely. It's definitely allowed us to save time in meetings and have a starting point for differentiating what we do from you know what a typical smart beta strategy would do. So I uh, largely I, I think smart beta has helped investors and anything that helps investors I believe is in 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 our firm's interest. So but building on that on terminology, this is something that I just am a champion of and I've really tried to ra- rally us around is that ourselves and our peers don't do don't do ourselves any favors when people can talk about factors as a zoo that isn't helping the client the investor and that isn't helping us as quantitative managers i mentioned andy birkin's book with larry swedro i think they strived to simplify 
And I would put out there that I'm a big fan and champion of the idea that value is a factor and that there are a variety of ways to measure it. And if we could all be more aligned on that and simplify things, I don't know how many of you follow Carl Richards. I'm a fan of him. He's the sketch artist. He makes these cool, simple, sharpie sketches on napkins. And he has one around that simplicity is on the other side of complexity. You start with simple, you go through all the complexity, and then you get to simplicity on the other side. And that we, as quantitative investors, are just at the beginning innings of that, and we need to work harder at that. But for me, consistent terminology, and the more we can talk about things the same, like value as a factor, and price to earnings is a way to measure it, and price to cash flow is a way to measure it, and EBITDA to enterprise value is a way to measure, you know, those types of things I think would be good. We make mistakes all the time. We have a mantra at Bridgeway that mistakes are the jewels from which we learn and grow. And we try really hard to do that. And I myself, even though I'm the biggest champion for what I just said, you know, I make mistakes and I, I really have great colleagues around me who point those out and we're all aligned on trying to do better and better in the interest of investors. Well, it is a tough communication problem because at least I find in the, in the quant space, so much of our language is tied back to mathematical concepts, like even the word factor itself. And you go back to sort of betas and alphas. These all come from the concepts of linear regression and that sort of stuff. And and, it, and they maintain this mystique, but somewhat unnecessarily so. And when you come from the background of that space, you're like, well, it's just an intercept in a line, but somehow everyone's pursuing it. But the broader point for me, I guess, is like trying to change this language going forward is potentially important. I've actually even tried to stop using the language of factors and prefer to try to do style instead, trying to demystify the math and just say, hey, this is a style of investing. And just like any discretionary manager versus quant manager, you know, this is what we're trying to achieve. But again, mistakes are made. I drop into the language of factors all the time and it's easy shorthand, but I, I do try to go with the, the style. Staying on the topic of smart beta though for a second, one of the things, again, this idea that smart beta has really been a great conduit for bringing quant into sort of the maybe the main investing ecosystem. One of the areas in which it's done a fair degree of at least disruption for me is disrupting the idea of the star manager and has in many ways taken the human factor out of investing. And in, this is inherently a human business. And, and Tamara, I know you talked a lot about trust. How do you, how do you think about maintaining the human vac factor in investing, the human factor in trust versus the potential benefits of a quant-based system and keeping humans, you know, quote unquote, out of out of the investing process. Well, I'll kick off with a couple of ideas, and Elena has some great thinking on this. And going back to Astro Ball, which is clearly one of my favorite books of the year, I think the big idea that resonated with me in that book that has been a central part of Bridgeway's approach is to humans are actually really bad investors. <laughs> That's, we make mistakes a lot. We have biases. But what we strive to do in, and this is, is to make the human element as systematic as possible. But also remember, and this, we've seen this in our 25 year history, just because you can't quantify it right now, 
doesn't mean that it doesn't exist. And I'll let Elena build on that, really talk about our collective views on how do you get the human out of the process where you want to get them out and keep the wisdom in the process where it's really beneficial. And if I can interrupt Elena, I would love for you to talk about something we were chatting about offline here. It just came to my mind, this, this idea of humans in the research process and, and you know, this friction of where to stop, when to stop. I do want to say that even though humans make mistakes, humans are amazing. So just, you know, I, I start with that. So I am a you know, very social person, you know, it's human interaction is incredibly important. But here is what, what, it, what it is when it comes to investing. The emotions are pitfalls of investing. And so the way Bridgeway collectively thinks, and I strongly believe in, is that we should absolutely strive to eliminate those emotions and the biases from investment process, but we should absolutely keep the human element. And numbers are just numbers. Numbers are, give you a great foundation for decision-making, but numbers are not enough. And I would say, you know, I've been asked whether our you know, investment process is a combination of art and science. And I wouldn't say it's art and science, but it's a expertise in science. It's this diversity of opinions and views and skills from the humans that allow us to process all these outcomes from the research and all these numbers, make sense of them, find the theories of why we would believe that the factor continue to perform in the future, and make objective decisions in the research. So it's the objectivity that we're after versus automation. Automation can be an implementation, make my lives efficient, but the humans and their ability to process information and make those objective decisions is just incredible. I would say, you know, the way I think of it is machines are great at making things fast, at producing the numbers fast, and, and they're incredibly helpful. But humans are great at asking why. And that question, why, if you, if you stop asking the question, it's, it's another danger. It's that, you know, if you ask me about dangers of quantitative investing, you know, where the challenges that I see is if we stop asking why. Why did the factor perform? Why we see the historical performance like that? Why it performed in such a you know, pattern in a value period where we expect the opposite? What's happening in, in, in sample, out of sample? If we stop asking why, we're just going to be doing that data mining. That's you know the most kind of famous concept and the problem in statistics. Because if you keep looking for a relationship, you're going to find that relationship. Later, you can find out it was just a coincidence if you didn't ask why. So that's, you know, if I, that's our approach. I strongly believe in that. So humans is something that allowed us to process these numbers and develop our process. Going back to your second point about, you know, what we've talked offline about when to stop. This is when I thought of when we talked about challenges of quantitative investing. And something that came to mind to me, and I didn't realize that, you know, until I got more experience in the research is the reason you also want to have a diversity of opinion and collaborative team and with various levels of expertise and backgrounds is to look at the research results. And interestingly, to know, to know when to stop, 
knowing when to stop the research and when to kind of implement and knowing that that's sufficient and then it gives you enough conviction, that's where you also need that human element and expertise. Because the research can be ongoing. You can keep going. You can always kind of, you know, another layer, another layer. And so you need to have great expertise and collaboration from the team to know when to stop the research, when to reject the research and celebrate that, and when to actually implement. So kudos to all of those humans in the quantitative investment world that making it possible. I love this phrase you used emotions are the pitfalls of investing. And I know we sort of just talked about that from from the side of the table of managing money, but it strikes me as being very important for the other side of the table as well. So a phrase I like to use a lot is that the optimal portfolio is first and foremost one that someone can actually stick with. Or our friend Wes Gray likes to use the phrase sustainable alpha requires a sustainable investor. And it seems to me that a lot of the emotions flare up during periods of negative performance. And I'm very biased here, but it always feels to me like quants end up being held to this higher standard of criticism. And and Tamara, it maybe goes back to what you were saying earlier around the trust issues, trust of the black box, trust of the quants, and maybe there hasn't been the trust built that discretionary managers are given all too often we're lumped together as a cohort and we're sort of blamed as for market dislocations as sort of this boogeyman. What can we do better as a community, either as a community or individually as managers, to have these conversations about performance, have these conversations around dislocations and better build trust going forward so that we can create more sustainable investors who can actually reap the benefits of the removal of emotion from the investing process. It's such an ongoing topic for us because we get sometimes questions, you know, do you really know what's happening? And then, then, you know, from when a client comes in, I think that different standard comes in from, do you really know what's going on? And I think then being transparent, being able to explain exactly the performance, where it's coming from is very important for that. Another part is I kind of follow the rule of no surprises. I want the client or the prospect not be surprised with performance. And that is goes back to the ongoing education and being transparent and being thorough in the explanations in advance. So setting the expectations, explaining however many times we can say that the underperformance happens, it sometimes can come as a surprise. So minimizing those surprises and explaining in advance our combination of factors, our objectives, what are we delivering is important. And you know, never position a client in a situation that they would be surprised or feel that they've been, you know, something being held back from them, because then that builds that feeling of not trusting enough. And then it's really, really, really hard to regain that. So you know, expect the periods of underperformance, but do all the work before that to be sure that your client understands the process and they're prepared for those periods. And when those periods come, give the facts, explain the performance, and be transparent and don't lose that trust. What I would add is really to acknowledge the people, some people that I've learned from the most on this topic as I as I've thought deeply about it for Bridgeway and and our clients and prospects is 
Number one, Elisabetta Basilico, a peer in our business, uh, wrote an article, I believe it was in April of 2018, and talked about algorithm aversion. You know, we just, we're humans and we, we trust people like us. We're more, we're more apt to trust other humans. And it's harder for us to, quote unquote, trust a machine. And she, in, in her article in CityWire, Elisabetta summarized a recent paper by three scholars from the University of Pennsylvania that basically confirmed that we tolerate human errors at a higher rate compared to machine errors. And I think that's the source of what you were talking about, Corey, is this, quote, higher standard that we have. Yes, we are held to a higher standard. As quants, I think what we've done over time is to embrace that because we can collectively, we can, we can hold up to that higher standard. We have the character and we have the confidence behind us. We've struggled with the communication part of that, but we're collectively getting better and better at that. But we're always going to face, I believe, because the science is behind this, people have done research on it, a higher standard because we use these quantitative methods and are very systematic of about what we do that's less relatable for an average human being. But what, because there's humans behind our process, what we can do in our communication, which is that key element of building trust, is the transparency. So making, giving people access to us and really making that, but also improving our communication and really making that what we do much more relatable. And I just see success all around us. That's why we've been growing over the last several years collectively as a group. And it makes me really excited. But I also remain humble and to acknowledge some other great people that I learn from every time I listen to them. Barry Ritholtz hosted Michael Lewis on his podcast recently. And they were talking about why do we make decisions that are against our interests? So the way I translated that was, you know, why do investors make decisions that are against their interests? Why, even in picking managers, why don't they pick the managers that have more science and evidence behind their processes? And the quote from Michael Lewis that I, I'll never forget that I keep reflecting on is, we are deterministic machines in a probabilistic world. And I see, of course, applications of that in our business. And for every investor who's most like us professionally, but I see applications of that across the entire society. And, you know, any topic I think about, I see applications of, of that concept. But really, it's something we're thinking about deeper and deeper at Bridgeway. And I do think this topic that we're discussing today around communicating better is the solution. So my my advice for myself and our company and all of our fellow quantitative investors out there is keep calm and just keep swimming because we're going to do better. So on this sort of topic of areas of potential improvement, you know, with this idea of being able to tolerate human errors more than machine errors, 
You know, we're talking about continued education. We're talking about continued transparency. Elena, you mentioned earlier that you guys even have your own custom attribution system that ties back to your process. But at what point, again, should we think about, is there a benefit to reintroducing the human factor? That if we know that the other people on the other side of the table are more open to a human face, a human touch in the process, do we do ourselves a disservice by so overemphasizing the quantitative element? You know, is there a real value to having a figurehead or a great storyteller at, at the front of a firm? I think of people like Rob Arnott or Cliff Asness who have really done, in my opinion, the industry uh, great benefit in being such wonderful figureheads for quants everywhere. Is that something quants should focus more on, on almost maybe pulling back a little bit in their communication on a focus on the numbers and the precision and the statistical robustness and focus a little bit more on the narrative. And that would actually benefit the other side of the table and have them more likely stick with the process. Well, I'll jump in. I have, I have a strong opinion about that. And, and I, the way I would distinguish it is number one, deep respect and admiration for the individuals you mentioned and believe that, you know, we've learned this the hard way ourselves at Bridgeway, that the value of someone who can translate your investment process in an understandable way to your audience is is priceless. And there are so many great examples of that, of how that's getting better and better. But at the at the end of the day, when you think about building trust, it has to be authentic. And, you know, you have to have conviction in, you know, the the core process that you're managing. So at Bridgeway, there's no way we would introduce a human element just because it would make us more relatable. We have to stick to the conviction we have about what the science and the evidence tells us. So we have no questions about that. At the same time, what we see is that there's more opportunity to take some of those human insights, this is how our whole style of investing started, and translate those into more systematic approaches. This is what you're seeing with new data sets. I mean, as we get better and better in the research that we do, some of it is to try to get at one, some of those things that humans can get at intuitively and make turn them into things that machines can get at. So I would I would say that, but for Bridgeway, we would stick to our conviction around a systematic and a quantitative approach. And if you ask, I mean, what I would advise is stick stick to what you have conviction in. And if you're a quant manager, stick to that. But in terms of being able to have people who can stand out in front of that process and be translators. You hear Elena and I both talk about being translators. She speaks more languages than I do, but I, I joke that, you know, my gift in life is a translator. I'm like just enough geeky enough to understand it, but just enough of a person who was the first person in my family to go to college to be able to explain it to, you know, an average human being. <laughs> and so I find myself per- at a personal level being a translator in in lots of ways. But that those are just some of my thoughts, Elena. I'd love for you to build on and add in your thoughts about this question of a of a human element and the value of people being able to translate and speak publicly about a quantitative process. Well, I absolutely echo what you said. The 
the process that we have at Bridgeway, which is the systematic systematic way of processing the information. This is something that at the core of the company and we are sticking to it and we're going to be true to that. So having the integrity and speaking and relating that to your client is important. How we talk about it again, it's developed over time. We are able to do it at different levels. We have more people that are able to communicate that. And I think that's a learning process and it's an ongoing process. The other part that's, you know, we, we interestingly in our presentations, we start with a team. And then before we get to the process, we talk about investment team and we highlight the expertise. We highlight the previous experience. We highlight that we have new partners and we have partners that have been with Bridgeway for a long time. And we talk about the contributions from those people to the research. We talk about the portfolio management team. So before we get into the kind of details of investment process, we're intentional about talking about the team. This is who is behind the portfolios that you're managing. We also highlight the collaboration of the research team and how sometimes jokingly explain how research meetings are running and importance of humility, importance of not being defensive, importance of, again, diversity on the team. So that demonstrates the value of the human elements before we talk about how we then combine that human element with the results and numbers and statistics and theories to make decisions. So definitely finding that, striking that balance is important, but it's it's about and humans and data, not humans or data. This idea of being translators, I, I find very fascinating. It's something that I think is a really important role for anyone who works in the quant community and trying to explain what we do. And it actually, when you mentioned being translators, it made me think of Google Translate. And I was tying that a little bit in my head to some of the custom attribution work you were talking about, Elena. And this is this is how my brain works, by the way. <laughs> and, and that made me think about a lot of the more now publicly available factor attribution tools. So this has been, I think, post the evolution of smart beta, the adoption of smart beta, there's been a lot of tools that have come out in support of smart beta. And now you can go online and just drop your portfolio into an online factor decomposition, or there's a lot of firms that'll do it for you. And you'll get back, you know, a nice big report that tells you you're loading on these different factors. And in many ways, I think of it like just taking your portfolio and dropping it in Google Translate. And you have really, unless you're very well educated in the language you're translating into it, you have no idea whether it's a, you know, a good translation or a bad translation. And I think the intentions behind all these tools are really, you know, go back to this idea of transparency and giving people insight into what's going on in their portfolio. But my concern is that without a common language or without that base level of education, they can potentially do more harm than good. And so I wanted to get your perspective on that. Elena, I know you guys have built out a custom attribution tool. Do you think that these sort of tools are useful for you know your sort of average partner that you guys work with? Or is this something really that we should, as the community build for ourselves, make sure the translation's happening appropriately, but maybe aren't as applicable as, as we think they are in just throwing them out there and letting people toss their own portfolios into them? It's again, it's an, it's an area of development. We're ahead where we were years ago, but at the same time, there is always more that we can do. I would say it's important to speak the language of your audience. A 
can't say that I can do it in Russian when I'm going to have somebody speaking Russian on the other side. I'll actually get completely confused. But what I mean is that we can define factors our own way, but if that's not the language that the audience is speaking, they're going to get lost and we will not be able to explain our process and you know do what we're striving to do during the conversation. So again, it's the balance between speaking the language that the audience understands and at the same time, explaining the unique approach of Bridgeway and highlighting the importance of how we develop and define our factor models. One thing that I find very helpful is to start with definitions. And that's what Tamara mentioned about, you know, what is a factor and then explain what we mean by that. So before we get into the depth of discussions, I like to start, well, we think of factors in this way and I define the categories of the factors. I can use proxies to take it to a higher level. I can come up with analogies there. That is very helpful to set the stage before we get into the description, kind of move the dictionary ahead and explain what you mean by various factors. And I will wait and I'll go into the details only after I make sure that the audience is, is with me on that. So I think it's very important to be creative in in finding and confirming that that translation works well. And again, what I've learned is there is an assumption sometimes that you need all the details, you need all the coefficients. And I say that, yes, definitions matter. And the reason we have our own unique way of defining factors and, you know, kind of using certain numerators and denominators is because we've tested in our research that definitions matter. But they matter for us delivering the investment results they don't matter as much for us to communicate in our process. And so find the way to speak the language, finding that way is crucial. You've brought up this idea of people asking you about the coefficients a couple of times now. And I, I know in my own experience, I spend a lot of time in person and digitally answering questions from investors. And they're almost always very well-intentioned. But I find that a lot of them tend to, to miss the forest for the trees, right? That point of I need to know the coefficient. When in reality, when you're even sitting in the PM shoes, you're saying, well, the coefficient really isn't the big muscle movement here necessarily. It's not the most important detail, but there's almost a, a sense of security in knowing that detailed knowledge. Are there any other topics or questions like this that you receive pretty frequently that you think maybe miss the forest for the trees? And are there any tools that you use to try to return the conversation in a more productive manner and bring it back to process? Let me give you one example. And I'm, you know, maybe Tamara can come up with another one. We start the conversation about the factor exposures and delivering deep exposure to factors and diversifying in various ways and Bridgeway's various approaches to diversification. So we talk about all of that. And then we get the question, so tell me about your favorite position in the portfolio or tell me something about the particular stock or could you tell me if you have any large banks and why do you have that large bank in the portfolio? So questions sometimes go to those specific examples, specific stocks. So I've tried different ways of kind of bringing the conversation back to the forest. And here is what I found that works well, where... I would say that there is different kind of screening ways and different ways to view in the portfolio. So, for example, here is a list of, let's say, 90 names in the portfolio. And yes, to 
it can look as really just, you know, here's a 2% position in one portfolio, here is a 50 basis points position in another, in a, sorry, in another stock. So it could be a combination of stocks. But here is an alternative, and I can talk about them. I can, you can, or you can even pull up the stories on Google and, and see what's happened with each individual's stock and what is the media that's covering it. But then I say, that's not why that name is in the portfolio. And that's not how I see that name. So when I, as a portfolio manager, view in the same list of, say, 100 stocks, it's like an x-ray view for me. It's a completely different view where I am seeing each of those stocks as a mean, as a way to bring exposure to a particular factor. So to me, a stock represents a particular factor in the portfolio. And therefore, even though they may have bad or good stories behind them as represented to the media, but to me, each one of those stocks is only a way to get exposure to the factors. So I view the portfolio from the standpoint of the combination of the factors. And then I explain that back to the clients or prospects as like, look, as long as the stock is ranked you know, by a particular model, that's why it's in the portfolio. It's not because I read a particular story. So it's creating color. Yeah, I can create color. But then I you know, gently explain that in a way that's not relevant to me as a portfolio manager. And maybe that's why it may not be relevant to you as, as a client. And let me explain how I'm going to approach managing the strategy. And then I repeat again, the factor exposures, diversification. And usually that takes us back to the forest and, and, and the audience agrees. So take that out from the stock level to the factor level. That's how we talk about our, you know, in our communication and in our presentations. What do you found helpful, Tamara? I would just build on what you were saying and, and talk about, I think a principle that has worked really well for us is what, what do we have conviction about that really matters? And I think you talked earlier, Elena, about no surprises, but when we get into these challenging conversations, and I'll just say up front, it is challenging for us. We do not have all the answers and, and we're learning as we go too, but that's what we strive to do is just get better and better each day and learn as we go. But what we keep coming back to is, are we being true? What do we have conviction about that matters? And we strongly believe that if we believe it really, really matters, then we need to be communicating that to the client. But there are degrees of what matters. And that's what you were talking about, Corey. But back to like what quants need to do for ourselves and do a better job. Like if you firmly believe that that makes a fundamental difference for a client, that that is going to be what drives your returns, then you better be communicating that to the client. But usually in our, in our case, we don't do this necessarily, but I think we do this mentally is if we rank what really matters and is going to drive outcomes in the portfolio, the things that are way down the list, the audiences that we're speaking to, they don't have time for us to get way down in the weeds and talk about the things that are way down the list. And we focus our communication on the things that we have conviction about that really matter that are at the top of that list for the portfolios that we manage. And that's been our guide. And that's how we, that's what we've been able to go back to when we get into these more difficult conversations. And we don't get it right all the time. And we have a 
systematic way of debriefing after meetings that has allowed us to, to get better and better with that over time as well. We've been talking a little bit here about in-person meetings and conversations. And I think there's often a luxury in an in-person meeting where you can look someone in the face and get a better understanding as to whether they really are comprehending what you're saying to them. Or they'll hopefully if interrupt and ask a question if they don't understand something. That isn't always the case in written communication, right? And for me, I know I personally struggle with things like quarterly commentaries, knowing the depth in which to go into performance discussions, knowing how to keep them interesting quarter to quarter when you have to write for a year after a decade, it feels like you're repeating yourself over and over. And maybe that is a benefit. The idea that some of your investment partners that are with you have been with you for a decade, and some of them are new this quarter, and their information level is different. How do you think about writing effective quarterly commentary that is meaningful to all of your investment partners, as well as hopefully interesting enough that they want to read it? I can hit this one real quick and Elena, you can chime in. It's really recapping some of what we've talked about. And frankly, when you get to define the quarterly commentary, we find that's the simpler setting. But what we focused on is tie attribution to design, define and have conviction about what really matters to the client, despite what they want to hear. We talk about that as being kind, not nice. So even though even if the clients, sometimes we know they would love for us to focus more on sector attribution or stock stories. We can do those things. Those are lenses at which you can look at the portfolio despite how we're building it. Yeah. But we've chosen to focus our communication, especially in a written form and our quarterly commentary on what we really believe matters. And on this, I just have to acknowledge, we have a long ways to go ourselves at Bridgeway, but we see great examples throughout our industry of where our peers are doing this really, really well. This custom attribution thing, we've developed something, but I, I see other peers doing things way beyond what we've been able to build. And that's an area that we as a firm will continue to invest in. But, you know, it's just coming back to what we were talking about before, trying to get to the simplicity after you have traveled through all the complexity. And we have found ourselves eliminating things from our communication. And then to your point, Corey, on repetition, I just have to chuckle at this and hopefully it'll give everybody something to reflect on when you are thinking about, should I repeat myself or, you know, so there's two competing ideas on repetition. Number one, you heard Elena talk about adult learners really need repetition and maybe all learners to do need repetition. You know, there's this rule of thumb. I don't know if it's based in science because I haven't read all the science behind it, but that you need to hear something seven times before you, you know, really retain it. And people talk about great leaders, you know, really need to, you've got to keep repeating your vision, whatever. That's great leadership, your vision and giving people direction. And you've got to repeat that. So on one hand, you hear a message that repetition is good and important. And then on the other hand, I'm always reminded of the message that insanity is the idea of repeating the same thing over and over again and hoping for a different outcome. And so for me, I find myself just laughing with that thought. Every time I think about repeating something, I ask myself, wait, is this great leadership 
or is this insanity? And the only way to know is just intuition. And I just go with my gut on that. But it is kind of a funny thing to think about. And I think would be a, a way for everybody to kind of think about the concept of, should I repeat myself again? Well, ask yourself the question, is this insanity? Like repeating myself and hoping for a different outcome? Or is this great leadership? You're saying it over and over again, but you're saying it in a different way, maybe translating it into a different language that your audience may retain better. I will just add very briefly that the some concepts are more from to me that are very important for the written communication when you talk about performance. And the very first one is to own it, to really state that, you know, whether you underperform or you outperform, and especially on the underperforming, you own it and you don't sugarcoat it. And it's not, you know, barely or vaguely or something like that. Just, yes, we did underperform by this much. and It was a bad quarter for us. And then, so once you own it and you don't, you know, don't feel, def- it's, it's not about being defensive. It's just being true. And so that is important. And I would say then explain the facts and explaining the facts, explain why tying to design, Tamara is absolutely right, tied to design coming from our conviction and our investment process of why that happened. And then sometimes we could provide some kind of historical perspective on performance. You know, how does that uh, versus our either, you know, research out findings or historical performance where it is and, and give some color on that. We do have some commentary that are kind of preceding our reports. And that's where we involve various partners in talking about Bridgeway. Sometimes it's a cultural concept. Sometimes it is related to investment performance. But we bring, we keep that human element in the writing as well, because it's it's not always about the numbers. It's understanding where the numbers are coming from and what is our evaluation of those numbers. So own it, tie it to design and kind of use the simpler language in the, in the communication. And don't forget to talk about the people. So as we wind down here, one of the final topics I want to talk about is this idea of evolution. And I know that you guys have some exciting innovations coming in the future. But I find that evolution can be a tough subject, particularly for quants, when we're supposed to live in this world of statistical evidence-based systematic investing. So just as an example, last year, I I wrote a research piece titled Factor Fimble Winter, where my question was, what happens if we believe a factor no longer works? If we believe something like, or a measure, Tamara, I'll use your language, like price the book no longer works. How long would we really have to wait to learn that it's not statistically significant anymore? And doing all these simulations, I found that for most of the major equity factors, it would take decades. Most of our careers would be over by the time we find out that they're not technically statistically significant. And so it seems like to a certain degree, a lot of what we do in beating our chests around evidence will actually make it very difficult for us to change our minds going forward. And nevertheless, I know that change is a really important part, that research is always ongoing. How do you think about communicating an evolution of views to your clients? And in particular, where you guys, you know, again, your, your firm's now a little over a quarter century old. How do you think about communicating those views to a more mature asset base that perhaps is really bought in to, to a prior method that you're now saying, you know, we think the evidence has changed for? 
We think of that as a the fourth pillar of our investment process. This continuous improvement is something that we communicate in the very beginning and we set expectations that those continuous improvements and updates and refinements is a part of our process. So we kind of, on one hand, we have conviction, we have very rigorous process in making decisions in the research and implementing later, sticking to the plan, the research. But at the same time, we communicate upfront that we are going on, we are doing ongoing research that, you know, ongoing improvement of our own skills, of our models, of our portfolio construction is part of the process. So change for sake of change is just creates appearance of work, but change for a certain outcome that's evidence-based and statistically driven is a part of our process and is, is implemented to improve results. It's important to have a process of implementing updates. And we've developed that process and can continue to improve that process over time where it's a very high bar for us to make an update to a strategy. And that bar needs to be met with our investment standards. We have a separate committee that's reviewing it from the views of the investors or whether that change is justified, whether we improve in consistency or we improve in the returns or we're mitigating the risks. Whatever the reasons are, there is a very high bar to implement that. But we've learned, again, no surprises is important. So in order to avoid that situation that, well, I'm surprised that you're making an update to something that I thought was working, set that expectation up front that the changes have been made to the portfolios, updates, and give examples. So what we like to do as well as we are explaining that concept to clients, we say, this is what we've done in such year. This is the refinement that we've implemented in another year. And that kind of takes that, oh, you're not going to be able to handle change away from the table because we demonstrate that what they are looking at right now has been going through this ongoing process of updates and improvement. So we find it very helpful. And then as we then deliver or inform about the updates, that's received well. And it's like, oh, yeah, we've, we've heard that before. And so now we see the demonstration of that. I'll build on that and say that we really emphasize what our clients can rely on. And we talked about building an enduring firm. The thing that hasn't changed and won't change about Bridgeway is this idea that we are building an enduring firm with a commitment to our clients, our colleagues, and our community. And we do make sure to emphasize those ideas early in our, in our materials and in direct conversations. On the commitment to clients, all of what Elena talked about is an expectation that we try to set early around putting their their interests first at all times. A way that we do that is having a structure and process around any updates and that they can trust that we will let them know about what's happening and that they can also trust that some things will evolve and we say it'll be evolutionary, not revolutionary, but some things won't. And so we talked earlier about our conviction in statistically driven evidence-based investing. That's not going to change. We just strongly believe that this idea of updates and following the evidence and being willing to to make those changes is a critical part of that process. You know, on the investment side, we love out of sample data. 
I love it on the business side too. And I know I've mentioned it a couple of times, but just to quote Astro Ball again, of giving evidence of some ideas that we've applied at Bridgeway, but that come from another setting. Jeff Lunau talked about that more than half of the teams use most of the information that the Astros use today. And that he believes, and this is what we believe at Bridgeway, that their competitive advantage is having the discipline and the conviction in the information to stick with it, even when it feels really wrong. And so we absolutely focus on that. But to add to that, and I believe that he didn't say this in the book, but I also believe he believes this, but we're also having the judgment to update when it's needed and to add new data or new you know, parts of the process is also critical for us as a manager and I think for most of our peers in the industry as well. Tamara, can you talk a little bit about strategically how you think about implementing a communication plan for changes? When in the research process do you think about starting to bring it to partners and clients and what what that communication actually looks like in practice? I just have to laugh because we've had so many conversations about this over the years inside of Bridgeway. A board member of the Bridgeway Funds in a meeting last week said that our CIO, John Montgomery, used me as a human shield for why he wouldn't give him any more details about some research that they were doing. (laughs) Because we are very disciplined about when and what to communicate. We have a process, as Elena mentioned, where the investment team comes to some conclusions from the research and makes some recommendations. And then another committee, of which I'm a member, as well as two other people who are independent from the investment team, have to review that and really validate that. And we really talk about that being a part of our multi-layer risk review and, and especially bringing in an external perspective, particularly, of course, the investment team tries to look at it from a in from a client's perspective and make sure they're putting the client interest first. But that's just another way that we at Bridgeway really add kind of a pause and a step of saying, is this in the best interest of our current clients before we implement an update? So back to the communication plan, we don't share specifics until we've reached that conclusion of approval. But then we are very disciplined and systematic in having a plan, thinking about what's the best way to communicate this externally, exactly what's changing, what's not. Uh, And we reinforce, like Elena said, anyway, at the beginning of in set expectations early that it's a part of our process to make updates, but to communicate them. So hopefully that that gives you some color on what we do and how we do it. We mentioned a little earlier in the conversation the benefits that have come in the investing side from evolving technology. When you look towards the future and ways in which we can improve communication collectively as quants, how do you think that technology fits into that equation? Ways in which we can better communicate, better utilize, you know, is it webinars, is it audio? Is it video? New creative ways? Is it social media? Do you think these should all play a role in, in the evolution of quant communication? Um, or do you think that at the end of the day, it's it's nothing can replace that in-person meeting? Uh, 
sometimes nothing can replace an in-person meeting. Sometimes that is crucial and really, again, depends on the audience, depends on the who you're talking to. So there is a huge value in that. And, you know, traveling takes time right now. But, you know, think of it like right now we even recording in, in podcast, but we're seeing each other. That's crucial. You know, the visual is important. And sometimes take it to the next level and being together in one room is important in you know, maybe sensing whether the prospects or clients understand the information and body language is a crucial part of the communication. And you can you can do that with you know written materials, as you mentioned. So depends. Sometimes it's important and I don't think anything can replace it in certain circumstances. However, leveraging the opportunities that technology provides to us is important and doing more and more education doing more of a maybe even behavioral finance, behavioral biases, education, using the technology is is wonderful. And something taken as our audience and as the population demands that and expects that as the new generation comes in and they're all way more technology savvy than I've been when I was in my 20s. So we need to be responsive to that. We need to be adapting to that new environment and using the technology tools, social media to deliver the information and help either educate the audience or help talk about what we believe in, about our conviction, about the benefits of the, say, quantitative investing, but do it in a way that is, again, creative and leveraging the use of technology. So that would be my, my view. I'll just hone and add two two points that I think are important. Number one, I get real excited about the future of better attribution and visualization. And again, I think the odds are in the favor of quants on this one, but I mean, this applies to all investors. I think for clients, the best thing we can do is to have them understand what they have and we can do better on that. And technology is already enabling that. And Corey, I'd encourage you to have some other guests on who are way ahead of Bridgeway on that in having tools available, and doing better attribution than even we do today. But that, that's in the future. So that and that's all enabled by technology and can be delivered through so many different channels. In fact, that are delivered better, not in person, right? Like they're delivered better through a computer or, you know, a video that's available or something like that. So that's one. The second is going back to the very beginning and my, you know, passionate favorite topic about building trust, the three pieces, character, capability, and then communication. The communication piece is about not just what you're saying, but just access. And I think that in-person access will always be vital. We're human beings at the end of the day who are making, you know, the important decisions and the way we're built is through connect, you know, to make decisions based on connection and communication and story. And that piece will continue to be vital and we'll have to use technology to make that more efficient, to make that richer. But the, you know, that idea of building connection is the foundation of, of trust. And, and like I said in the beginning, I think that's the most important focus for our entire industry and every individual that is doing this for a living. So last question for both of you, and it's way out of left field, 
And Elena, I'm going to pick on you first because you're a PM. So you should have a, an answer somewhat ready for this. And it is investing related, but it's meant really to, to marry a little bit of, of personality and investing. And it's the last question I'm asking all of my guests. And the question is, if you had to take your investments today and liquidate all of them, you have to sell everything and you can only invest in one thing for the rest of your life, what would it be and why? I would, you know, and this is going to be my nature of diversification that's going to come in. So I do have various portfolios and I'm prone to mental accounting. So I'm guilty of that. I know it for myself, but I would say diversify, find the most diversified portfolio that's available. I do believe in stock investing. It's got to be stocks, you know, and I, I, I'm quoted here saying stocks are fun because they move. I am a stock investor and my risk tolerance is is pretty high. So it's got to be stocks. It's got to be a diversified portfolio of stocks. And it's something that I, you know, I don't have to, I wouldn't be able to rebalance, right? Because it's only going to be one thing. So if I don't have the luxury of rebalancing and following what I believe in into the rebalancing and portfolio construction, that it's got to be something that's diversified, you know, right there to the degree that's possible. Though I don't like one thing. I like many things. All right, Tamara, we're putting you on the spot. I should have totally cheated on this question because I knew you were going to ask it, but I didn't think about it in advance. (laughs) The best answer I can give you is that I think what I want to invest in doesn't exist yet, but I'm excited about it existing in the future. And that would be that I would use my assets to invest in a quantitative social impact private equity strategy. (laughs) So listen, I know we're on the cutting edge of some of that private equity becoming more systematic as well. I mean, obviously, I'm a believer in in those methods. I'd like that. And then, you know, I, I just, I just believe in that would combine all the things that I'm interested in passionate about in life. And also, you know, give me something that I can just set it and forget it, which is what I like to do with my, you know, personal investments. I just don't want to have to worry about them. I want to like, let that sit there and be focused on other things like we've talked about today. So it doesn't really exist yet. I do know that based on, you know, what I'm hearing and seeing from people. And I don't have any personal private equity investments today. But I like the idea of those types of investments and then using whatever assets I have to invest in that type of thing, something that is going to both deliver a return, but also have a broader view of what impact means for an investor. I do need to add, I just realized that I've missed one important item from my description of my portfolio. It's got to be systematic. It's got to be something that's based on numbers. I wouldn't feel comfortable otherwise. And that's probably because that idea is engraved in me. So it's whatever's reflecting how I'm trained and how I'm running money. So I don't know if it's going to be called factor-based or whatever that is, but it's got to be systematic and using logic to make decisions. If people want to learn a little bit more about Bridgeway and the types of investment services and products you guys offer, where's the best way for them to find that? Bridgeway.com. Perfect. All right. Tamara, Elena, thank you so much for joining me. This has been a really fascinating conversation, one that's very different than all the other podcasts we'll have this season. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you, the audience. 
It was a pleasure. Thank you.